A little over 50 years ago, during some of the darkest days of the Vietnam War, American bombs, rockets, and napalm devastated the Vietnamese city of Ben Tre. Eyewitness accounts spoke of the horrific scenes of death and destruction. In his dispatch from the bombed-out city, Peter Arnett, who at the time was an Associated Press reporter, quoted an unidentified American officer as saying, It became necessary to destroy the town in order to save it. I thought about that quote the other day after the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals handed down its latest decision in another qualified immunity case. On July 10th, 2017, Gabriel Olivas, who lived in Arlington, Texas, was having a severe mental health crisis. His son called 911 in a panic and told the dispatcher his father was threatening to kill himself. When three Arlington, Texas police officers arrived at the Olivas' home, they smelled gasoline. They found Gabriel Olivas in his bedroom holding a red gas can and threatening to set himself on fire. One of the officers attempted to defuse the situation and pepper sprayed Gabriel, temporarily blinding him. That's when a second officer pulled out his taser and pointed it at him. No, shouted the first officer. If we tase him, he's going to light on fire. But that second officer, who had been trained in taser safety, and specifically in the dangers of using a taser near a combustible like gasoline, fired anyway. Gabriel Olivas immediately burst into flames. That's when the third officer present fired his taser at Olivas, striking him a second time. Fire engulfed Gabriel and quickly spread to his bedroom walls. His family were watching in horror nearby. They were quickly evacuated, but their home burned to the ground with Gabriel Olivas inside it. The officers were never charged, so the Olivas family sued the police officers and the city of Arlington, Texas. But the Fifth Circuit Court granted the officers qualified immunity and dismissed the case. The Olivas family never even got to go to trial. Why? Well, according to Judge James Ho, the fact that Gabriel Olivas appeared to have the capacity of setting himself on fire in an instant and indeed was threatening to do so meant that the officers had no apparent options to avoid calamity. There was no reasonable alternative course of action that the officers could have taken to protect innocent lives. Really? They couldn't have evacuated the home or tried to subdue Gabriel Olivas, who was standing just a few feet away from them? According to the majority, 
lighting Olivas on fire so he wouldn't light himself on fire was the only recourse for these officers. The absurdity of this argument was not lost on Judge Don Willett, who was appointed to the Fifth Circuit Court by President Trump and has been a steadfast critic of qualified immunity. Gabriel Olivas was burned alive, Judge Willett wrote in his dissent. Two police officers tased the suicidal Olivas despite, one, knowing that he was soaked in gasoline, two, knowing from recent training that tasers ignite gasoline, and three, knowing from a fellow officer's explicit warning in that instant, if we tase him, he's going to light on fire. How is it reasonable, Judge Willett asked, to set someone on fire to prevent him from setting himself on fire? In other words, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. So unless the Supreme Court intervenes, Gabriel Olivas' family will have to live with the idea that it is perfectly reasonable for the police to set a man on fire and burn down his house to keep him from setting himself on fire. The horrific death of Gabriel Olivas is suffused in sorrow, Judge Willett concluded. Perhaps these particularly egregious facts will prompt a meaningful message from the Supreme Court, one that marries law with justice and common sense and makes it clear that those who enforce our laws are not above them. I couldn't have said it better myself. We'll be right back. We're joined today by Lieutenant Ray Rice and Officer Shanette Hall, who are both serving police officers in St. Louis and also board members of the Ethical Society of Police. This Ethical Society of Police is an association of St. Louis police officers, which was founded in 1972 by African-American police officers to address racial biases within the police departments and the community. We are so delighted to have the chance to chat to two serving police officers on this podcast. We think it's incredibly important to hear from officers who believe in accountability, even as they risk their own lives to serve and protect. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Perhaps we should start by, by getting you both to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your backstories. Um, Officer Hall? Sure. I take great pride in being the second vice president of the Ethical Society of Police. Um, I'm a St. Louis native. Uh, proud of that. I, I love my hometown, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and I love the, the hope that's instilled in many of us to see a greater St. Louis than what we have right now. I have been serving for many years now, uh, not as, as many as some of uh, my other comrades, uh, but uh, I guess I'm kind of young in comparison to others. But it it's been a good 
it's been a good run thus far. It's been a challenging one, and, and the challenges have come with addressing uh, the structures within the organization uh, more so than uh, outside of the organization. My background, I'll just start with, uh, uh, this is actually my 25th year as a police officer. Uh, kind of a background of how I got into law enforcement. Like most of my colleagues, or unlike most of my colleagues that I know, most either came from a family uh, of, of police officers or they knew from a very young age that this is something that they wanted to do. And so I grew up within the city of St. Louis and in my formative years as a, as a young teen were in the height of where, when St. Louis recognized or began to experience the gang and, and, and crack violence. Well, so I say that to say that along with the war on drugs became a war in the community of black people. And so my experiences as a young black person wasn't positive at all with my encounters with law enforcement. And so this was never anything that I aspired to do. And so it was almost like an epiphany. Uh, something told me, go see about being a police officer. I had never thought about it before then. And I went down to uh, the, the, the police department to get the application. And I was actually walking out and, and, and a black recruiter, he stopped me. Had he not done that, I probably wouldn't have gone through it because the application itself was intimidating. But he made it. Uh, so that officer stopped me and talked to me for about 15 minutes and asked the typical question, why do you want to do this? And what I share with him is what has been my driving force still to this day, is that I had a, a real desire to, to be a positive force of change. And I didn't see that happening as a civilian. Uh, so I wanted to be somebody that made a difference to positively change and prevent the encounters that I watched and experienced as a young black person. And maybe I can be, you know, change the culture and the organization and the experience of any other black person in that way that I experienced. Wow. Okay. I would like to ask officer Hall, are you, do you feel comfortable sharing generally or specifically about your personal struggles within your department? Are you, are you seen as a traitor for being part of the ethical society of police and, you know, wanting to stand for what's right? Yeah, sure. So I think we truly have to understand is that for whatever reason, there are a number of people who honestly fear speaking up and, and speaking that truth to power. And it's a, it's it, to be quite honest and just blunt. It's outrageous to me. <laughs> you know, you you spend six months learning how to run, jump, and shoot. You you spend all this time, whether you're in the academy or in, or on the street, uh, knowing that you could potentially not only be harmed but be killed, right? And that's a fear that's very real. That sometimes a lot of people don't have to deal with. We are knowingly putting ourselves in danger, and, and by no means do I think that we should seek sympathy for that understanding is great, but not sympathy. But there's a whole nother category, if you will, of danger that we have to live with every day uh, with being Black and choosing the profession of being a police officer. And then let's just add it on there because that's who I represent, but being Black and being a woman 
uh, and Adonis on here. So I'm a double minority. Uh, there are not many African-Americans in the profession, and then there's not many women in the profession. And so you kind of get it twice as hard sometimes. And so there are always going to be, we just going to keep it all the way for real, right? There are always going to be struggles. Those are always going to exist, especially with us being a super minority at this point, let's just say. And it's hard. It's hard. I did a, um, I, I did an interview with the Washington Post and uh, they were asking me the same thing. So can you tell us about the struggles of being a black police officer? Of course, of course, you know, we can talk about that. Um, but at some point it was right at the same time, just after uh, Deputy Clyde Kerr who was a deputy in Louisiana, Deputy Clyde Kerr uh, ultimately, ultimately decided to take his life. And one of the reasons in which he decided to do so is that he stated that he could not deal with the racism in law enforcement. How heavy must it be? How heavy must it be to not only know that you have to knowingly put yourself in danger and you have to save other people, but you are fighting this internal battle that you feel as if that you're not being recognized for. You feel as if you're not being heard and, and nobody is not only sympathizing, but empathizing with your struggle. And you have to carry this every day. And she asked me and she said, well, how does that feel? And I said, you know, as, as simplistic as it sounds, um, but it's very huge. It's heavy. It feels extremely heavy. You have to go to work knowing you have this heavy, wet blanket just sitting on you. And you can't get it off. And while you're trying to maneuver and go around and do what it is that you're supposed to do, while you're still trying to run to gunfire, while you're still trying to save people from domestic violence situations, you still have this heavy, wet blanket on you because of who you are and what you look like and what you represent. They turn their back on you and they look away. And so now what are you about to do? So that's hard. Those struggles are there. Um, I felt extremely vulnerable and, uh, at one point, and I'm okay with saying it now because I guess it was put out there for the world to see. Uh, one of the last lines in the Washington Post article is uh, I had a soft moment and I told her, I said, you know, I just have some days where I went into a subsection of my office and I cried because I was frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. And then you just cry, but you have to hurry up and fix your face and go out and do your, do your job. And I read the paper and I'm like, oh my gosh, why did you put this in here? Like now all of these people are going to see it because you still have to have that persona that you're still somewhat tough because I'm a double minority again, right? I have to make it seem like I can carry my own in this profession. And uh, to be quite honest with you, that was probably one of my most empowering moments that I did not recognize initially. And when people ask, where are those good officers? We're here. But it is so hard. It's so hard. And, and, and we're not asking for you to come and just pat us on the back all the time. Say, oh, OK, well, you're supposed to do this. We need support. We honestly need support because we are truly put in those situations when we do speak up. I have to worry about if my partner who is next to me is going to take a little bit longer to get to my call. I have to worry about if my partner is going to honestly help me when he sees me in danger or when she sees me in danger. Those are very, very real. Uh, Lieutenant Rice, I'd want to ask you about mental health support within the department. Does it seem like it's taken seriously? Is it offered? Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think for the most part, uh, not just in law enforcement, but in our society as a whole, we tend to associate, and let's speak towards PTSD, we tend to associate that with a traumatic experience 
or a traumatic observation. Typically in law enforcement, we associate it with you've even ex- either experienced a life or death situation or you've witnessed some heinous victimization of, of a child, right? And so there are mechanisms uh, and, and things in play for that type of emotional support and mental wellness that law enforcement is is slow to catch up. We have a lot of, you, you know, we can do a whole lot more. But the component of the racial component of the mental health piece is vastly ignored or discredited, right? And so the reality of it is in most police agencies are 100 officers or less. And so if you consider the population, uh, the numbers that African-Americans or people of color represent in law enforcement, and you consider it, the vast majority of agencies are 100 officers or less, that means one or two persons of color are on that police department. And if those one or two people are experiencing on a daily basis everything from as small as microaggressions to as worse as outright overt acts of discrimination, who do they have as a support system? Where do they turn to? So we are more fortunate than other places, but it still is a heavy burden because we don't, without each other, we don't have the support. And without the community, we're definitely vulnerable to attack, not only attack physically, but our career progression and our opportunities are eliminated, right? Because you spoke out. And so when the community is is asking where we are. When those of us do stand up, they definitely need to support them and it has to be consistent because that would encourage others to do it. So, But what happens is, is not only internally are we used as examples of what not to do, right? So you punish one harshly and it prevents others from taking that road. And if that person is able to be punished without any recourse from from a political standpoint. That means that if the person, the mayor or the county executive who has hired the chief, who is allowing these types of behaviors to occur and the, and the, and the citizens who vote don't hold those individuals accountable, then we will always be left to be picked off and we can't change culture and we will and, and these types of things will continue to occur. Right. Officer Hall, another question about the ethical side of police. Is there a formal process for filing a complaint to, let's say, the U.S. Department of Justice for an investigation, a federal investigation on the misconduct, uh, racism, um, and bias within your departments? So, okay, let's break this down. Transparency. This is one word that I think is most often misused, right? A lot of times you will hear police departments putting out this word, toting this word around. We want to practice transparency. We're going to tell you all everything, especially when an officer involved shooting comes out or a highly criticized incident. That's the police department's go-to word. We're going to be transparent. We're going to do, right? Nine times out of 10, they're full of it. Because transparency as it relates to departments, when they are showing it, they're giving you just the bare minimum to say we're not violating policies or, uh, or, or laws or anything. 
But trans, true transparency begins when it's not even being called upon. True, true transparency is that education that should come from law enforcement agencies to the public, already letting them know what different policies are, what the what the practices are, what procedures are, explaining, being that vessel, letting them know what the laws are. Hey, this is how we can release body cam footage. This is why we can't release it. If you think it should be changed, please come. Those are transparent practices. And you don't see that very often. You don't. But the piece that if I can tell anybody, especially everybody in the state of Missouri, and it could apply to anybody outside the state of Missouri, when you are looking to complain on a police officer, please, absolutely, when we're talking about violations of moral turpitude, absolutely contact the state. The Department of Public Safety has what's called POST, the Police Officer Standards of Training. POST is the entity that is in charge with not only licensing police officers, but also decertifying them. And so what that means is you strip the certification away from police officers so that they can no longer practice or be a police officer legally. Anyway, they can no longer be a police officer. And once again, like I said, to use the St. Louis as an example, we know that we have police officers. We've seen it time and time again where police officers will get fired or terminated from one agency and then they will go to one of the smaller, less populated agencies, but has a higher population sometimes of either lower socioeconomic people or people of color in their agency. Right. And so you have officers who have issues, obviously, because they were terminated, going to practice into another agency and they're already horrible officers. So we must we must we must we must make sure that we are complaining to the state because we have to strip these bad officers of their certifications to be or their licenses to be police officers. You know, we we talk about and, and people are conscious of the the worst abuses which result in innocent people being murdered. But my understanding is that that's just the tip of the iceberg, that there's everyday occurrences that happen that are discriminatory, abusive towards black people, members of the public, and also toward your fellow officers. I, I mean, I, I guess what I'm thinking is that if if you as police officers if if you are being discriminated against by your fellow white police officers what's it like for regular black people on the street absolutely um the thing is uh, i feel as if sometimes that and it's understandable when people have this thought process but the badge and uh, the the uniform, it doesn't automatically make the oppressors say, oh, well, hold on, that black person off limits. I'm not going to treat that black person any differently. They're the same as me. No. <laughs> if anything, what it probably does is they'll stop and they'll look at it and I'll say, well, hold on. That person has on the uniform. They still black, though. My bias is probably still going to come out. It, it, it doesn't stop. And so if, once again, what we've all seen playing out, play out with the trial with Luther Hall. Luther Hall was a, a St. Louis City detective, a black man. Luther Hall was doing uh, surveillance work during the unrest um, a couple years ago. Luther Hall was out. And while doing the surveillance plain clothes, everything, right? Just looking at the scene, sizing it up, seeing what's going on. His comrades, 
his co-workers, the people he took the same oath with, the people who, who were sworn to protect and to preserve, beat his butt. And then they came back. Some people even said, well, I didn't know he was a police officer. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> at the end of the day, they looked at you still as a black man on the street. It had nothing to do with the fact that you went to the same police academy, that you took that same oath, that you draw from the same pension, or you eventually will draw from the same. None of that matters. None of that matters. Because at the end of the day, most people have these things that are put into place that we will even call biases, uh, thought process, indifferent thoughts and everything that will lead into their actions. And so you're right when you mentioned that a little bit, Ben. A lot of times we see the, the most heinous of, uh, of things, right, that play out from the body cam footage, the murders, and, and uh, those are absolutely horrendous. But what we do know, to include officers in different departments, oh, you better bet your bottom dollar that there are Derek Chauvin's all across this country. There are Derek Chauvin's in St. Louis. There's Derek Chauvin's in Kansas City. They're all over this place. And so the key is to recognizing these Derek Chauvin's, whether it began either from the application process, if they slip through there, you have to recognize them in the, in the academy process. If they begin to slip from there, you have to recognize them through probationary periods. And every time they slip through those, those steps, that's a failure. That's an absolute failure on leadership. And then now when it gets to the point that such a person murders a black or brown person, a young person, whomever, and then now we're like, oh my goodness, oh, Willie Lynn. no. You probably knew about this person from day one and you failed to do anything. Not only that, when you mentioned about, uh, you know, basically the unseen, the unseen uh, misconduct and discriminatory practices. Right. So everyone knows the whole world knows about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, Philando Castillo, uh, Eric Garner, you name it. Right. But for every George Floyd, there is probably. 10 that were that evidence was either falsely uh, <laughs> falsified and and as a result, black folks and people of color are being imprisoned and incarcerated that are in, innocent uh, at astronomical levels. Those are the unseen discriminatory practices that are going on that don't generate the 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 shock and awe that watching someone being killed in front of our eyes. So they may be still here in body and soul, but they're locked behind a cell at the hands of a person who utilized their position as a law enforcement to put them there and they knew it was wrong or that they lied or falsified evidence. Uh, and so that too is going on on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, Lamar Johnson is one of those cases. Um, um, he's the person, he's an individual black man here in St. Louis that was convicted of a, a, a robbery or murder in 1995 and has maintained his innocence. And 26 years later, um, the prosecuting attorney's office did a review of the case and found numerous inconsistencies and in prosecutorial misconduct and even flat out lies and falsification of witness statements, which led to his wrongful conviction. So that's 26 years of his life that have been lost to a jail cell. Uh, and that was a police detective that contributed to that false and that the wrongful conviction. Right. And, and, and what happened, what happened to that police detective? What, what happens when a policeman is currently working? 
Yeah, I mean that's what drives me crazy. I mean, the 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 po- these are officers that are supposed to be law enforcement officers. They're supposed to be the most accountable, and when they lie, when they falsify a report, there it's it's just like a little disciplinary action on their record. I, I mean, nothing happens. This is why we started the podcast Unaccountable, um, specifically because we learned about the Supreme Court doctrine of qualified immunity and how it protects police officers from accountability. And so I want to ask you both about you know, your position on qualified immunity and also your understanding. Is it something that is overtly discussed in the ranks of the departments and within your colleagues? Or is it just something that is unknown but plays on the culture, uh, offering, you know, your your colleagues the opportunity to feel like they can do whatever they want? First and foremost, we need to get rid of qualified immunity. Let me throw that out there. Absolutely. We need to get rid of qualified immunity. Um, but what we see is, is that we do not widely across, I have not come across a police department yet that has any steps in place to deal with this, appropriately deal with this. But law enforcement does not teach their police officers how to deal with authority. They don't. And so when you mix that with the people who are already coming in with their biases, it's just multiplied. You see these actions that are multiplied over the years, time and time and time again. And so when we are not dealing with people or we're not teaching people how to deal with authority, we are not teaching them how to also deal with that power that comes along with having the authority to basically do what you want. Police officers have the ability to, as as, as long as all things are, are put into place, police officers have the ability to take away life and liberty. And we are entrusting people to do this. We're giving them a gun and a badge and say, yes, you can do it. And we constantly reinforce it by saying one thing right. And we don't explain it perfect. We don't explain it the best way we can. We constantly tell officers, every, make sure you go home. Make sure you go home. Make sure you go home. And the statement starts and it ends there. It's not backed up with anything else. So in their head, all I hear is I'm gotta, I have to go home. I got to go home. Any means necessary, I got to go home. And when you constantly hear that and then you pair that with, well, I can take away your life and liberty and I'm I'm not going to get in trouble. I don't see very many officers get in trouble. So when I know that I have to get home to my family because they live and by all means, we want everybody to go home to include people that you're talking to. But if that's constantly in your head, I got to go home. And then what is also on your other hand is, well, I have the ability to take away your life and liberty. And then what we also know is on top of that, are we constantly training officers on on how to, to give them the tools necessary to make sure that they are not violating people's civil rights? I guarantee you, I put my check on it, that there is an officer every single day that is here, St. Louis, wherever, that is violating somebody's civil rights every single day. We are failing our officers. And so once we begin to fail them with small fails, those magnify into big fails. And those big fails are not affecting the person who is responsible for the fail being the the, the officer. It is affecting the victim who happens to be many times black and brown folks. So you absolutely must give because it, it, it is a it, qualified immunity is a barrier to accountability. It is absolutely a barrier. All right. L- Lieutenant Rice, do you feel as if qualified immunity ended? The argument I keep hearing is that police officers or candidates would not sign up for the job. People will leave the job because they're afraid of 
getting sued and losing their house and, um, you know, losing their, or their pensions or whatever. Is this a fear that you've heard is, and do you think it's, there's any merit to it? First of all, if that is someone's fear, that is that a deterrent to becoming a police officer is that if you recklessly kill someone that you'll be able to go home and go to without any recourse uh, and then that be taken away. If, if you can no longer recklessly kill somebody and then claim that you didn't understand the merits of the law at the time, then maybe our, our profession does need a purge of those individuals with that mindset. And so um, I have never in 25 years felt that I needed qualified immunity, right? And so there, it's, it's a hip, hypocritical on its face. The, the, the third greater version of qualified immunity is basically that a law enforcement officer can commit an act that may even rise to taking someone's life in the commission or the, the, the execution of their duties, even if they didn't know that the law prevented that behavior. So on the one end, we say ignorance of the law is not a defense. But for a police officer, ignorance of the law is a defense. So in, in no simple terms, for just that alone should be enough to say that this is not a just practice. But for anybody that is coming to what I consider a very noble profession, and they need to have in their mind, if I recklessly, if I act recklessly and someone dies as a result of my actions, that I should have no accountability. If that is preventing you from coming into this profession, then we don't want you. That's my stance. Has the Ethical Society of Police um, worked with any of the legislators on the current qualified immunity discussion happening in Congress in the first drafting of the bills uh, as they went through the house or at any time. Here's, here's the, here's the really deep part of this, right? Yes. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> and, and, and so for the most part, the political party that is leading the charge for accountability, police reform, criminal justice reform, by and large are democratic, you know, left leaning. Right. But at the same time, it's on the state levels. It's those same Democratic lawmakers that rely on the police unions for support to maintain their positions, whether it's as a state legislator or even congressman or senator. Right. And so behind the scenes is kind of like this three card Monty, because we have to remember the AFL-CIO the largest umbrella union in the country, the police unions are like their little brother, right? And and unions, by definition, are one for all, all for one. So if Democratic Congress or legislators or politicians rely on the political support of unions, then they can only go so far. And so what happens is, is we see these bills, whether it's at the state level or at the federal level that are passed that are without teeth. So locally, 
we have a bill that's going making its way and it's on the governor's desk, Missouri Senate Bill 26. And so it has a it has several things that were touted as a win by the Democrats. The vast majority of those things are already in practice by accredited law enforcement departments, such as banning chokeholds. Our police departments and most accredited police departments banned chokeholds 10 years ago. That is not a win. But at the same token, they inserted protections in the Police Bill of Rights into this now bipartisan bill that is being touted as police reform bill that makes it difficult for citizens to come forward with complaints because it mandates that they have to identify themselves and the complaint has to be reduced to writing. That is a deterrent to accountability, right? Those are the, that's the real deep thing that's going on, not just here in Missouri, but that's what happens. So when it comes, so there really needs to be an educational movement in terms of how democratic politicians are just as beholden to police unions as the support of the strong arm of the law from the Republican side. This is what people, all people have to do. Track the money. When you pull up a politician and you see who contributed to that person's campaign. So the police union and, and anybody under the AFL-CIO umbrella may not be openly locked in arms saying that we support this candidate. But if you go look at who's giving the money, they are all financially supporting that same candidate and they all have the decision and they get together on who's who we're not going to support financially. It might not broadcast it, but it's definitely the the proof is in the financial recordings. Check it out. So I got a few other areas that I'm interested in. I mean, one is that I've been looking at the oath that uh, most police officers take. And it talks about holding themselves and others accountable and essentially uh, reporting bad behavior when they see it. I mean, do police officers take that oath seriously or is this – just a bunch of mumbo jumbo that they got to say in order to get the job. I, I think early on, I think most of us come into um, the law enforcement like babies, right? We, we're, we have all the right intentions. And at the time that we take that oath, I, I think the vast majority of us have every intention to uphold it. But what happens is, is that you're indoctrinated into a system and a culture that makes that upholding that oath so much more difficult. And so, you know, we've even had officers quit recently because, I mean, I'm talking like, you know, everything from, you know, less than two years on to, you know, five, 10, because they've gotten to the point where they recognize that this isn't what I signed up for. And as I like to say, the dirty underwear have been revealed under the nice outfit. And so when you have a young officer that's being trained by a, by a veteran officer and they're being told, this is how you behave, this is how you do things, how do I defy what is already in practice, even though I took this oath to do the total opposite of what I'm experiencing? 
And so it is a real, and I understand it, right? And I, I want your listeners and hopefully other folks will speak to this to the general public. It is a true, it is a real decision to determine whether or not I'll say or do something that may impact the fact of my ability to continue paying my bills and to support my family and livelihood. Or to the extreme, I say something, uphold that oath and speak truth to power, tell on something, hold people accountable. And I'm in a in a situation where I need assistance and they don't show up and I lose my life or I'm seriously injured. Those are real decisions that officers are weighing when it comes to deciding to uphold that oath or choosing door number one or two. And in the absence of the accountability from the top and from the political support, they conform because as as humans, it's our natural instinct for self-preservation. There are a few of us throughout history, whether you talk about Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, all the way up to, and I, you know, anybody that has said that the movement is bigger than them, right? They have gone into it just like we have. We came into this understanding that there was going to be some backlash, some retribution, right? But for me, it was bigger than just me because we're talking about real lives. There are folks that are experiencing and and that are burdened with this on a daily basis that work within the police department. And then there's the community that is subject to it. And I can't look myself in the mirror without getting out here and actually trying to make a difference. I understand that, you know, and and I'm not criticizing officers who lack the intestinal fortitude to make that decision because everybody's circumstances is different. I understand. But for me, it was bigger than just me. If for not me, then who? You know, that is a, that is very real. We have to find uh, comfort amongst ourselves because these are, and when I say ourselves, I mean amongst other black folks, amongst other kinfolk and not all skinfolk, but kinfolk, we have to find comfort amongst ourselves. And then there are still a couple of people who who understand um, that do not look like us, a couple. And so that is where we find our safe space. And just yesterday, I believe, I think I was telling uh, Lieutenant Rice, I had to, amongst my safe space of other uh, Black officers, I had to send them a message. And for whatever reason, it was just placed on my heart to say it. It was bright and early in the morning. And I had to tell them like, hey, look, true sacrifices or what we think are are sacrifices really aren't that if we know why we're doing what it is that we are doing. And so earlier, I did not mention that is uh, why I decided to become a police officer. So I do come from a family of law enforcement. Um, All of my uncles and my father was a police officer. My father was my absolute best friend uh, in the world. And when I was in high school, my father worked in the same area that I went to school and that I grew up with. And he was a juvenile detective at the time while I was in middle school and high school. And so many of the people I was in school with would run into them if, if they were a person that would make mistakes. And I had uh, one of my classmates come to me out of nowhere out the blue. It was just like, man, your daddy is so cool. And I was kind of used to hearing that. And I'm like, oh, thanks, you know, whatever. Thanks to kind of shut it off. He was like, no, no, no. He was like, you know, I really did something bad. Like, I, 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 my life could have been gone, but your dad took the time to help me. 
help me out of the situation. And because of him that I, I know this is a young teenage boy that's saying this because of that. I know that I, I, I will never mess up. I'm good. Here I am now, 15 years out of high school, over 15 years out of high school, and I still have the same people saying the same things to me. And so I would see that and I would hear people pouring that into me about my father. And so I knew that I wanted to embody him as much as I could. It didn't matter. He was a man and I was a woman. I wanted to be exactly what he was to people because I wanted more people to have that same reaction. And so that was one and a half of the reasons why I went into this profession. And then ultimately, unfortunately, the other half is I, too was a a victim of crime, not personally myself, but my brother was murdered uh, in the city of St. Louis. And to this day, we still have no idea who killed my brother. And I know I went through a traumatic experience. I went through a couple periods in my life where I was probably in some situations I shouldn't have been in, but I did not know how to deal with that trauma. And police officers across the country are constantly running into people who simply do not know how to deal with their trauma. They do not know how to cope. But yet and still, we're not empathetic towards that. And we automatically lean to the laws that we are thinking, that we are comprehending, that we must enforce instead of understanding people. And so if I could have been that person to be more empathetic than the person who was going to get more arrests because of somebody that was going through a bad situation, then I looked at it as, well, let me this is my attempt to decrease the population in the prisons in the jails and the prisons. That's how I looked at that. And so I think that widely that is just what we are missing, along with not teaching officers how to deal with authority. We are not teaching officers to understand what empathy is and how they gain empathy because we're not teaching officers anything about cultural competency. We're not teaching officers anything about effective communication. Uh, We are not teaching officers about the implicit biases. We are not teaching officers about the history of policing. All these things that will feed into one being empathetic, which will then all turn into uh, all of these things of, of how officers will be able to handle and deal with people, right? What are we are given two of the deadliest words in, in law enforcement, and somebody may agree, Lieutenant Rice would probably agree, two of the, 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 most, the most horrendous words in law enforcement, it's discretion and reasonableness. Those things negatively impact minorities all day long, because what we do know is our discretion is based upon how we feel as a person. And if we are able to identify enough with the other person to use our discretion to make sure that we're not going to give them an extra ticket or we're not going to arrest them that day or whatever, however it is they decide to practice it, right? That discretion has a heavy correlation of bias. And then reasonableness, once we finally get to the reporting phase of officers when they must write their reports or even in the criminal justice system, those are the two worst words in the system. But these are the things that are just constantly left out of conversations that we're not understanding. We are talking about the chokeholds, what Lieutenant Rice talked about, right? We're talking about, which many of these things still are deserving of conversations, but we're, we're still talking about the no-knock warrants. We're still talking about All of those things are great. What is it that we're talking about down here foundationally that messes up policing to this day? Do you think that this issue of qualified immunity, that 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 if we if we ended qualified immunity, do do you think that that would have an effect going down through the through the whole culture of the of policing or or do you I mean, I mean, I guess it's not a silver bullet. Well, I, I think there, you know, when you talk about effect, you, you you know, you have to look at it as short term and long term. Short term, I think you will have those who can will. So when I say those that can, those that are in a position 
to transition out of law enforcement to the civilian sector in a job that pays them a salary that they can maintain their their same standard of living. I think you will you will see that uh, for those who feel as though um, I might be in a position where a vulnerable because people know who they are. Right. So if I if qualified immunity was was canceled tomorrow and I am an individual that knows that I have been practicing my law enforcement profession in a way that is corrupt or discriminatory. And now I am or could be held personally accountable. I just might seek employment elsewhere. That's going to happen. And that might be a significant number of police officers. So that's the short term response. But I think over the long term, when you be, you weed out those individuals who had those innate um, who came into the profession for the wrong reasons in the first place. And I think we will end up being better for it. And so something like like the cliche, you know, some things have to get worse before they get better. And I think this is the storm that America should be willing to burden or to 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 suffer through for to come out better on the back end. Um, And so, you know, there is no magic bullet, but I think that is a significant and, and necessary step that needs to occur. You know, it is, um, I don't know, it's it's so encouraging for me talking to you two guys. Uh, you know, it's, it's just so great talking to you people that have this uh, inner drive to, to make it right. I, I can't tell you how much, how much I appreciate it. It's encouraging uh, to hear you say that, but... Uh that we need more of you because honestly, we are getting beat down, right? We, we both, as a result of our, for the lack of better words, activism, we have been retaliated against by our employer. And so that message has been sent to everybody else that might have wanted to do the right thing. This is what you don't do if you want to continue or progress in your career on this police department. That plays out in every corner of the country in our profession. And so I have four and a half years left and I'm, I'm punching out. I can, I can retire. I don't see anyone coming up in the same vein to take the torch other than Shanette and to, and Shanette, that burden that I'm talking about, you know, I, you know, I don't mean to speak for, but it is a heavy, a blanket that's filled with dirty mildew water that at some point she might get to the point she wants to take it off. And that taking it off means that she will no longer be within this agency fighting this fight. And then who will do it? And so it's important that viewers and everybody else that, you know, that can go to award shows and talk, you know, do all the hashtags, but, when those of us who are walking around with this heavy burden don't have the immediate and direct consistent support, we eventually get beat down to the point where we want to take it off. And then you're left with the status quo. And so it's really important that people get actively engaged in supporting whoever it is, whatever officer 
uh, in the city and not just in a protest against the administration, but a protest for those who came out and are doing what it is that you would want them to do. If I and if I could add to that a, a little bit, you know, for a second, I had to determine if, if we were going to be the ones to step into this title. Um, but we are going to be the ones to step into this title. What I like to think of um, Lieutenant Rice and myself to be are these subject matter experts because we were born black and we're going to die black. <laughs> and, and, and when I say we are unapologetically black, we are. However, we have both chosen this profession right now, uh, whether or not it's one in which we decide to retire out or leave early on. We both chose this profession. And so we understand the intricacies of it, uh, a.k.a. the messed up practices, the, the racist practices. We see it every day. We know this. And what we are almost even asking to people, the politicians included, when politicians come out and say, we have the answer, this is what we're going to do, that's fine. But speak to the subject matter experts in that organization that know, that absolutely know what's going on and what is not going to be effective when you come out and call for it. Because it's it's a complete mental game and this is all by design. And so when we have some of the outside people come and say, I got the answer, I got the answer. And you have many of those people inside or know the system when they look at you and they hear your answer, it ain't, oh, hell, they ain't got nothing. Let's go on over here and support them so they can make it look like we're doing something. They will come to support you. They will because they know it's not going to change anything. Go to the people. What And, and I know I've heard a, a couple of people here locally even that, that those closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. And so when you are looking for the solutions, you need to look at what it is that you are trying to change. Find the people that are affected by what it is that you're trying to change so desperately and ask them. Ask them. Don't possess so much pride to where you can't come over here and ask them. People do not always have the right answers. Politicians do not always have the right answers. Civic leaders here who are in charge of organizations, whether they be the NAACP, the Urban League or whoever, they too do not always have the right answers because they are not in this world. And so when you need those answers to positively affect the people that you say that you are also serving, then you go on over there and you talk to those subject matter experts and you say, hey, what is it that we need to change? Give me the verbiage that I need to say. So when I do take it, if I do get something passed, it's going to be something impactful. And it's not going to be the BS that that is just we're never going to hear from again. And we only got one time to hit the ball. And it probably won't happen until a couple other people cycle around, whether it be state legislators, state senators, uh, another governor. I don't know what I I mean, you can tell what's in the running of our governors now. We ain't going to get nothing. But we only got one time to hit the ball until some more years come around. How many more people are going to die? Lieutenant Rice, Officer Hall, the work that you guys are doing is is the kind of hero work we would expect from all of our police officers and public servants and we understand the risk that you take by standing for what's right we really really appreciate you standing uh you know as officers and working to make your communities better thank you and remember we need you to act now you can join the campaign to end qualified immunity by going to holdcopsaccountable.org holdcopsaccountable.org just put in your email 
and we'll keep you up to date with what's happening. Also, we know the power of social media. Share this podcast on your channels using the hashtag unaccountable. We'll see you next time. This is a Crowd Network podcast presented by me, Aloe Black, and my co-host, Ben Cohen. It was produced by Luis Gwilliam and Michael Epstein and edited by Mickey Curling. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.